Amen. Lord, you truly are wonderful. That's a word that's used, but only you deserve. Lord, we just praise and magnify and lift up your name. We praise, we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. That man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Let me encourage you to read 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be finishing that up this coming Sunday. So be uh, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Amen? Read ahead. And by the way, those clips were taken out of context. So a text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? So you may not have grasped how great this movie is. I want to encourage you to come. It will absolutely be blessed. And invite some people that maybe friends who know the Lord and friends who don't. It's free like everything else is here. So please invite them. All right. Let me bring you up to speed in 1 Samuel. If you haven't been coming or if you've been napping and not paying attention one or the other, let me catch you up. Now, we've been talking about how in the days of Samuel, this is right after the time of the judges. Though Ruth comes after it in the Bible, Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. At the end of the time of the judges, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, Israel has basically turned its back on God. Sadly, it's even got into the priesthood. Because we know with Eli and his own sons, Eli becomes his compromising father and a compromising high priest. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are in the tabernacle and they're getting drunk and they're sleeping with women in the tabernacle and they're stealing from people. They're taking more than their portion of what should be sacrificed to the Lord. They're keeping for themselves. In the midst of all of that, as we've talked about, this woman named Hannah comes and she's crying out to God and God had brought her to a place of desperation so she'd be ready to give her son away. What did God do? He allowed her to be barren for a length of time. Long enough where her husband Elkanah married another wife and began to have multiple children with the other wife. This other wife, Penina, becomes the rival to Hannah and mocks her even each time they go up for time of sacrifice. Well, in the middle of all of that, Hannah finally comes to a place where she says to God, she's crying out at the tabernacle, I will, if you allow me to have a son, I will give him to you and I will dedicate him to service to you. He will take the Nazarite vow from the day he is born. Eli comes out, sees her praying, and because prayer was so rare in those days, he thinks she's drunk and out of her mind babbling at herself. But the truth is she's praying. And sadly, there's a time in in Israel that they're so far away from God that even prayer seems to be rare. So God answers her prayer. She gives birth to a boy by the name of Samuel. She comes up and puts him into the care of Eli. Even though Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were a disaster, she still gave her son into his care. And what's incredible is year after year, she would go back and see her son and make him a new robe. And in a sense, was rededicating her son to the Lord because each year must have been a temptation to take that little boy home with her. So as we've been continuing through 1 Samuel, we've seen the godlessness and the the, sadly, the fruits of an ungodly people who've walked away from the Lord. And last time we looked at responding to the call of God in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we saw that example in Samuel himself. How do we respond to God's call? By having an, a, a hearing, an attentive ear, having an obedient will, having a humble heart, and then having a godly walk. Now that brings us to chapter 4. And as we come to chapter 4, we already know that judgment has been placed upon Eli's sons. He's already been told they're going to die in a single day because of their ungodly behavior. 
We know that, that he, he as well has been chastised by this man of God, who I believe was probably Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, we don't know for sure, but we see him throughout the New Testament. He came to Eli and said, not only are your sons going to die, but your line will no longer be the priestly line. And so some years have gone by, Eli is growing more and more blind, things are getting difficult, and the last verse of the last chapter, look what it says there, it says, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. If you remember last time, Eli was not hearing from God anymore, she began to speak to Samuel. And he said, Samuel, he kept calling him by name, and aren't you glad that God calls us all by name? He calls you first unto salvation, and then He calls you unto ministry. Everyone in the building, if you're born again, God's got a ministry for you. If you were here on Sunday in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, God has called us to stir up the gifts that He has given us to use them for His glory. He did not save us, as we've talked about, to be pew potatoes, or in this case, chair potatoes. God has called us to use us for His glory. And so this is a, a time when, sadly... Those who are in the position of leadership are godless, and God's raising up this young man, Samuel, and now it's being apparent to all of Israel that indeed God has His hand on this young man. And the Word of God is finally, yet again, going to start going forth in the land of Israel. And so let's take a look, and we're going to see, as we come to tonight's text, we're going to see the eventual and unavoidable result of people doing what's right in their own eyes. When we do things contrary to God's will, God is a faithful God in that He will show us grace and He will suffer long, but He won't suffer always. There comes a time when our sins, consequences, will come about. We're going to see that again, when submission to God's will is replaced by the pursuit of our own will, when our desperation for Him is replaced by demands of Him, when intimate fellowship with the Creator of the universe is replaced by dead religion, when we begin to see all of these things happening, that's exactly what's taking place during this time of Samuel. And it should be an application or an exhortation to all of us that we were created for God's good pleasure, not so that... You know, we can make demands of Him. Sadly, much of the church today has fallen into the same trap of what happened in Israel in those days. Over 3,000 years later, instead of coming humbly and broken before God, in awe of His reverence, His holiness, His majesty, His mercy, His grace, thankful for what He's done, many Christians and churches have, have turned to the world. And instead, they only come to God when things are tough. You know, Christ's Christianity is not really Christianity. Amen? You only show up and talk to the Lord when things are difficult. That's what's happening in Israel in tonight's chapter. You know, we're to have intimate fellowship with Him. Amen? Being a Christian does not mean being a churchgoer. Being a Christian does not mean being an American. Christian means little Christ. You're a follower of Jesus, a reflection of Him. And if that's true of us, It goes much further than just turning to Him as the holy Santa Claus in the sky when we want stuff or the the great jailkeeper to get us out of trouble. He's the one that we walk in intimate fellowship with every single day. And sadly, we see so much of the church today has turned away from that intimate fellowship with God. So if you're a note taker tonight, I'm going to give you four points. Let me give you the title of the message. The title of the message is The Glory Has Departed. The glory has departed. And these are signs of of a lost intimacy, reverence, and desperation for God. These are things that begin to happen when we lose our reverence for God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And you know what? We need a little more fear of God in this country. Amen? We need a little more fear of God in this room, evidently. Amen? We need a little more fear of God because you know what it is? We, if we start to, again, the word fear, not necessarily that we're you know, petrified of Him, but having an awe and reverence for Him. Magnifying and lifting up His name. So, here's the four points. The glory has departed. Signs of lost intimacy. Number one, going out into battle without the Lord. Going out into battle without the Lord. We'll, we'll give some application for that as we go through the text. But guys, every morning before our feet hit the carpet, we ought to be spending time with Jesus. Amen? How in the world can we walk out our door and get in our car and go to work having spent zero time with the creator of the universe? And I want to encourage you, we should not be going out into that battle. And so too, we see that in tonight's text. Number two, blaming God for our failure and defeat. Blaming God for our failure and defeat. Here's another sign of lost intimacy and reverence for God. We go out into battle without the Lord and we blame God when things go wrong. Number three, we put our faith in the wrong things. We put our faith in the wrong things. As we'll see tonight, they put their faith in the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. You know, we don't put our faith in things. We don't put our faith, and we'll talk about that as we go through the text. Our faith is in Christ alone. And number four, the resulting anguish and consequences of living a life apart from God. So you can just say the resulting consequences. That's the fourth point. When the glory has departed and the intimacy has been lost, the impact that it has not only on you, but the generation to come. So let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The glory has departed. The signs of lost intimacy, reverence, and desperation for God. First of all, going out into battle without the Lord. Look at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, I love this. The word of Samuel came. Israel was in rebellion. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The high priest was a compromiser, as we've been talking about, who lacked true conviction. His sons were thieves and fornicators. The holy place had been turned into a den of iniquity. It was such a a place as this that God, in His grace, was bringing yet another voice to preach the truth. He was rising up someone who would proclaim the word with great boldness. In this case, it almost reminds me of John the Baptist in the New Testament. A voice crying out in the wilderness. Here you've got people that have rebelled against God, and God will raise up even a child if necessary. And so, not only does God speak through Samuel, but He makes His words known to all of Israel. The prophet named Samuel was a man, as we've talked about, a young man called by God, set apart from his birth, given to full-time service. His name Samuel means heard of God or asked of God. She called him that because God heard her prayer from the day he was born, from even before he was born, from even before he was conceived, he was dedicated to God. And God had a plan for this boy. And God was going to use him to bring the word back to Israel. And here's the thing, guys. We should be boldly proclaiming the truth, but God's word will never be snuffed out by the enemy. Ever. He cannot stop the gospel. Now, he can hinder it. He can have an impact on it. And you and I ought to be bold with it. But know that he can never put the gospel out of commission. He can't do it. He cannot stop the word of God. And so, if God has to raise up a child, he will. The Bible says if we don't proclaim him, the rocks will cry out his name. Amen? Amen. And I don't want to see that. As interesting as that might be, let's be busy about our work so rocks don't have to start talking. Amen? Amen? Let's do what God's called us to do. So the word 
of Samuel came to all Israel in the middle of all this rebellion. God's truth was proclaimed boldly in the midst of darkness. God's word had come to God's chosen people who had in their rebellion all but forgotten God. And here he is, by his grace, bringing another voice to boldly proclaim the word. Samuel, prophet of God, he's living in Shiloh. He proclaims the truth to all of Israel and with impact. And here's the thing, guys. The Word of God is going to go out, but it only impacts those who hear it. You know, the Word of God can go out, but if we don't hear it, if we don't listen to it, it's not going to do us any good. So the Word was given. It had been disregarded. Let's move on. Now it says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now, it's interesting. The Word of God comes again, and immediately the enemy attacks. If you look in the original language, it speaks of, The initiator of this attack was not Israel, but the Philistines. So what's happening here is the word of God finally comes to this rebellious people. And now it's time for them to, you know, again, restore their relationship with God. But right on the heels of the word of God being proclaimed with boldness is the enemy attacking. Boy, what a picture for us today. God starts to speak to you, give you direction for your life, lead you into a new ministry, stirring up the gifts within you, and who's waiting right there to accuse you, to, to drag you down, and to try to drag you away into rebellion? The enemy. No sooner does God to be, begin to reveal His word to His people than the enemy shows up to attack them. The enemy wants nothing more. Let me say this. The enemy wants nothing more than for you to doubt the word of God. There's nothing he wants more. In the Garden of Eden, what did he say to Eve? Did God really say? God said, all of this is yours. It's all yours. You just can't eat that tree. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, yours. He comes and says, you know what? God knows if you eat of that, you'll be like him. And you know what? He never even really said you couldn't eat of it. Did God really say? The enemy's tactics, 6,000 years later, have not changed. Amen? He wants you to question the Word of God. He wants you to doubt the Word of God. He wants pastors to stop teaching the Word of God. He'll do everything he can to keep the Word of God away from you because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If your faith's going to grow, the Word of God must be implanted in your heart. And so the enemy wants to squash it. He wants to take it out of school. Been successful at that. Wants to take it out of our homes. He wants to make it mocked in the world that we live in. And all the more reason we, that no Christ need to be bold about our faith and need to stand up for the Word of God. Amen? You've heard it a thousand times, so a thousand and one won't hurt. Sixty-six books, forty authors, three continents, three languages, fifteen hundred years, one central theme, no contradictions. How's that possible? God wrote it. Amen? And so if God wrote it and God gave it to us, how much more should we be faithful to study it and to live according to it. The word had come, the enemy was lining up for battle, and now it's the opportunity for the children of Israel to make a decision. Now understand who's coming against them. It says they went out to battle against the Philistines. Now the Philistines are mentioned as early as the time of Abraham. They're mentioned over 150 times in First and Second Samuel. And the Philistines are like the nemesis of Israel in these two books, being that they are the most technologically advanced and the greatest warriors of all the enemies they're going to face. Understand that they had learned from the Greeks how to use iron. So they had iron spears and iron swords and iron helmets and iron shields and coats of mail that they put on that would protect them from their enemies. 
And we know later that there's going to be a pretty mighty Philistine by the name of Goliath. So these guys were mighty warriors. And so as the word of God is coming to them, the enemy is coming at them in force. And this is not by chance. And we can learn. So this once seafaring people have now settled. And you know what? The Philistines did not like the fact that Israel had come in and conquered the promised land, the land of Canaan. And the Philistines had five stronghold cities within the area. And their greatest desire was to eliminate Israel. But as we're going to see in tonight's text, they had a fear of the God of Israel because they had seen what the God of Israel had done to the Egyptians. They had heard about all the battles that had been won. And so they were fearful of Israel, not of the people, but of the God that they served. You know, I pray that we'd be so linked to our Savior that people, when they think about us, would think about our God. Amen? Amen. When people thought about Israel, they thought about the God of Israel. But sadly, it seems that the Philistines were thinking more about the God of Israel than the children of Israel were at the time. Sad. So, as we go out to battle, if we go out in our flesh and they're going out to face this mighty army in the Philistines, they're in big trouble. Because from a physical perspective, the Philistines were much greater, much more prepared, much better trained, had much better weapons. But, if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? If God is for us, who can be against us? You plus God is the majority. And so here we have this battle coming against the Philistines, this great and mighty army, and this would be a good time for them to run to Samuel and seek some godly counsel. This would be a good time for them to return to the tabernacle and make sacrifices unto God. This would be a good time for them to fast and pray and seek the Lord. What do you think? You think they're going to do that? If you've read ahead, you already know. Now look what it says. It says, And Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. So they did go out, and we see that as they go out, they do not take even one moment to pray. They don't ask for God's wisdom. They don't ask for God's counsel. They don't go and seek the direction of the high priest. In Deuteronomy 20, it tells us that before they went out to battle, they were to go to the high priest, and he was to make sacrifice, and then he was to be the one to speak to the people to direct them to go out into battle. They didn't even bother taking their time to talk to the high priest. And may have been because the high priest, Eli, at the time, was growing dim and blind and was letting his, his ungodly sons run crazy in the tabernacle. People had become resentful of what was happening when they went up to make sacrifices unto the Lord. So it says there, And they camped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now if we had a map out, you would see these are up both at the very top end of the Philistine territory, not very far apart about 20 miles away from Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, where Samuel was, and where Eli was. And so they're camped out there, all ready to have a fight. If you were to look at a a topographical map, you would see it's a big flat plain, a perfect place for a battle to take place. So these armies are mounted up. The Philistines are much stronger and greater, but the children of Israel kind of become spoiled. Because God had always come through. But God is going to come through as we are walking faithful obedience to Him, not when we rebel against Him. Sometimes He'll show us grace in spite of us. But in this case, they're just out there on their own. They're not seeking God. They don't want His will. And the glory does depart when we are resting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. This is obviously, the name was given uh, after this all took place, because in 1 Samuel chapter 7, it says Samuel took a stone and set it up 
between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying thus far, the Lord has helped. So this is a place where God was going to do a mighty work. Aphek means fortress. So you've got the Lord has helped and fortress coming into battle against each other, but you've got a group that has not turned their lives over or sought after the Lord's help. They're out there on their own. Guys, I don't ever want to be on my own. How about you? Without him, I can do what? Nothing. And the word in the original language means nothing. And here you have these people going out, the children of Israel, chosen by God. He's the one that delivered the word to them. He's raised up a a prophet to them who's delivering the word to all of Israel. They disregard God's will. They go out on their own. Let's see how this works out for them. Now again, the Philistines were this mighty army. And the Philistines were ready for battle. Verse 2. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Israel went out into battle without godly direction, confident in themselves instead of being desperate for God, and the result was 4,000 dead people. Guys, when we go out confident in ourselves, no longer desperate for God, the consequences are not good. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 12, this is Samuel speaking, when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. Guys, if we forget God and then we go out and do things in our own power, we should not be surprised when they fall apart. We should not be surprised when they're fruitless. The glory of God had departed, not because God departed from them, but they departed from God. Amen? When you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved, right? You're the one that moves away from God. He desires to have intimate fellowship with you. We're going to talk about this as we go on, but if you're spiritually dry right now, that's not God's fault. Amen? Amen. I'm spiritually dry. Well, you know what? You're not spending enough time with Him. And not just, and we'll talk about this as we go on, but it's not just you doing a bunch of things to try to, you know, please God. But it's you having an intimate relationship with God. And that's the difference between the children of Israel as we're going through this and the reason that the glory has indeed departed from them. Israel had seen God defeat their enemies many times. They came to the point where they thought they could do it without Him. Lord, may we never think we can do it without you. So the glory has departed. Signs of lost intimacy and reverence and desperation for God. Number one, going out to battle without the Lord. Trusting in yourself instead of trusting in God. Can I encourage you? Pray about everything. People start, should I pray about? I always, before they, yes. Should I pray about? Yes. But you don't know what I'm going to ask you. It doesn't matter. You should pray about it. Amen. Should you pray about the job you should take? Should you pray about the car you should buy? Should you pray about what school your kids should go to? Should you pray? Yes. Pray about all of it. Does God care about every detail of your life? He loves you so much, He'd rather die than live without you, and He's proven it. He's numbered the hairs in your head. You are His treasured possession. We should be praying. Israel went out without seeking God, and the consequences were brutal. And you know what? It's only going to get worse. Let's take a look, because sadly, instead of being broken before God, they're going to blame God. They went out on their own, they didn't, heed, they didn't seek God's counsel, they didn't seek God's direction. They went out on their own, they go out, they get defeated, instead of coming back and going, whoops, we blew it. We, should, we went out there without the Lord. Time to get on our face before Him. Instead, let's take a look at verse 3. And when the people had come into the camp, 
the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Who do they blame it on? They blame it on God. Now, in a sense, they're saying that God is in control. That's true. Because any battle that's won or lost, certainly God has to say. Amen? I had a, a Christian guy say to me not long ago, Well, God doesn't, you know, like the, the hurricane that hit Louisiana. Well, God wasn't, had nothing to do with that. Are you out of your mind? God has everything to do with everything. Amen? If God had nothing to do with anything, we'd be in big trouble because that would mean then that things could happen beyond God's control. And we know better than that, don't we? And so the truth is that God is faithful. God's in control. God's got His hand on everything. We need to seek His direction and His will. And so they understood the sovereignty of God, but instead of coming on their face and saying, Lord, we missed you. That was a mistake. You know what, Lord? We need to get right with you. Instead, they said, Lord, they said, why did the Lord let this happen to us? Well, I wish they had 1 Samuel. Because they could read the first three chapters and know exactly why God did it to them. They were living outside of God's will. They were in total rebellion against Him. They were wondering why they'd been defeated. Aren't we God's kids? That's what they're saying in Israel, right? We're God's kids. We're God's children. Those are the vile, idol-worshipping Philistines. And we're God's kids. How do they beat us? Because you went out there without God, that's how. You went out there on your own without the Lord. And they were defeated by these idol worshipers. If the elders had heeded God's word and His covenant, they would have realized that the defeat was due to their own disobedience. In Deuteronomy 20, as I said, he said, the high priest must be the one to lead you, know, to lead you out. And told them if they disobeyed, in, in Deuteronomy 28, the result would be defeat. Israel had acted independent of God, and the results were disastrous. Many today awake and begin their day without God. No prayer, no time in the Word. Go to work, attend classes. Uh, thoughts only of what they need to do today. Share their faith with no one. Hang out with their friends in the evening. See no need for godly fellowship. Spend weekends giving their flesh a rest from a busy week. Out too late Saturday night to attend church on Sunday. Time goes by, no prayer, no word, no fellowship. Your conscience begins to be seared over about sin. You act according to your flesh. And then you begin to live an ungodly life. And then ungodly, the consequences to an ungodly life come. And then we go, oh, thanks God. And the point is, God did not make you drink the alcohol and get in your car and hit the tree. Amen? God did not make you go out to a bar and meet a woman and sleep with someone you're not married to. God did not go out and, you know, you, you chose to sin. You chose to rebel. You made those decisions. Sin has consequences. You know what, guys? We need fellowship. We need to spend time in the Word because if we don't, we grow cold to His voice. We stop hearing that still small voice. Our conscience, the Holy Spirit living inside of us gets seared over. The Word of God talks about that. We shouldn't be blaming God. God desires that we walk in the center of His will. But Israel had walked away from God. They were no longer concerned with His Word, but their own desires. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. You've heard it said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book, right? We've all heard that. And it's so true. The more we stay in the Word of God, the more it will keep us from falling into the traps of the enemy. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God does not... You know, it's not bad because God forbid it. He forbid it because He knew it would harm you. 
And he knew that Israel would come to harm if they disobeyed him. And yet they did it anyway, and the consequences came. Sadly, they don't learn from their defeat, as God had sought to get their attention. Instead, what do they do? They begin to blame God. Now, look what they do next. It only gets worse. Not only do they go out into battle without the Lord and blame God for their failure and defeat, but now they start putting their faith in the wrong things. Look what it says. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. If you underline things in your Bible, underline it both times there. They want to bring the ark out so it can save them. Now, they don't think they should be losing to the idolatrous pagan Philistines. So instead what they're going to do is they're going to bring out the ark and turn it into an idol of their own. You know, it will save us. There's no it that can do anything for you. Amen? It can't save you. Only He can. Amen? Amen. So their idea is, let's force God's hand. Because if His glory dwells in the holy place at the ark, then let's just bring the ark. That'll make God come. If we bring the ark and put it in front, then God has to go with us. We'll force His hand. Guys, don't ever try to force God's hand. Amen? We need to follow His leading, not force His hand. Instead of humbly repenting before God, They believed that by bringing the ark, they would force God's hand to bless them, trying to manipulate God. And again, note the true object, again, of their faith. The object of their faith was the ark, not the Lord. If you have those pictures of the ark, you want to put that up? I know most of you have seen it before, but it's no different than worshiping an idol or having a good luck charm doing what they're doing. Now, the ark itself is roughly a four by three by three box represented the character and presence of God. It was in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go near it and only on the Day of Atonement. They went in on the Day of Atonement. They took the blood of a a perfect firstborn spotless lamb. They took that blood in. They sprinkled it on the mercy seat. With inside of that box, that four by three by three, roughly, a little smaller than that actually, inside that box were three things. Manna, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments. The law... Who's, you know, the Word of God, who's the Word? Jesus Christ. Who came to fulfill the law? Jesus Christ. Aaron's rod, the high priest. Who's the great high priest? Jesus Christ. The manna, who's the Word? Jesus Christ, right? Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. So all those things represent Christ, but on top of it was the mercy seat. Because only if the mercy seat covers the law can you and I be saved. If we look straight at the law without God's mercy, we're judged and we're guilty, Amen. You look at the law, the Bible says it's a taskmaster, a schoolmaster, that leads us to the cross. The law doesn't save you, it reveals your sin and your need for a savior. It's like a mirror reflecting your sin. So it reflects our sin, it cannot save us, you can't be good enough, so the mercy seat is on top of it, and there the blood was sprinkled. Now you can't really tell enough you can, those are cherubim on each side, and those are angels. Now what's interesting, and you've heard me say it before, but I'll tell you again, that when the blood was sprinkled, this is such a picture of the cross of Calvary, but also the resurrection of our Savior. Because when they first came into the tomb, what they saw was an angel at the top and an angel at the bottom, and the blood-stained clothes of our Savior in the middle, and that's exactly a picture of what you see with the ark. 
So now what they decided to do, this Holy of Holies, only the high priest was to be even in the Holy of Holies. They decide, well, let's just grab that thing and take it out in front of us. And because God's glory dwells there, we'll have to win. Let's just force God's hand. You know the glory has departed when you start trying to manipulate God. Try to use His throne for their purposes. You know, our ark's better than your idol. You watch. You you got Dagon, the half fish, half man God. We're going to bring our ark out here and see who wins. But here's the truth. By the time the ark comes out, the glory's already departed. Because the glory didn't depart because they removed the ark. They removed the ark because the glory had already departed. They were not worshiping God anymore. They were not seeking after God anymore. They were not making Him the Lord of their lives anymore. They had turned their backs on Him. And they had turned what God was using as a representation of the cross into nothing but meaningless furniture at that moment because they were not honoring God with it. Now, had God sent the ark out into battle before? What's the answer? Yes, He did. But He gave direct and clear commands to both Moses and Joshua when He did it. And the priests were carrying it and they had to carry it in a certain way. And it was covered and all these types of things that happened as they carried the ark. Remember one time they tried to put it on a wagon and a guy touched it, what happened to him? Drop dead because you don't touch the glory of God. And now instead, they're going to force the hand of God. Let's go get it, grab it, and let's let it be, lead us out the way and we'll have victory over our enemies. Guys, we don't put our faith in an it. We don't put our faith in a building. Amen? Aren't you glad? We don't put our faith in a method, a denomination, a church, or a pastor. We put our faith in Christ. Amen? To Him alone do we put our faith. To Him alone do we seek to follow. We don't worship the church, the building, a method, a man. We don't even worship the Bible. Amen? Why do we read the Bible? It's God's Word. So why do we read God's Word? So we can know the God of the Word. Amen? You know what? You can study this and memorize this and know it very, very well and still not know the God of the Word. Amen? So it's very important that we should read the book. Desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. He magnifies His Word above all of His name. So we spend time in the Word of God daily to seek His face, to know Him better. But guys, it's not the Bible we worship. It's the God of the Bible that we worship. Amen? Amen? And the problem here was they were taking the worship away from the true and living God into something that represented Him. And they were placing that as being a good luck charm. And they put it out in front of them. And again, this is a reflection that the glory has departed. That they're no longer trusting in the Lord. Israel's faith is now in the ark of God when it should have been in the God of the ark. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And then it says, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, a couple interesting things. Who's carrying the ark? Hophni and Phinehas. First of all, should these guys have been anywhere near the ark? These guys should have been booted out of town a long time ago. You know, if we have an assistant pastor here who is sleeping with women at church, and stealing, and getting drunk, probably not going to be here very long, amen? 
Amen? Amen? Now that's not happening, just so we don't have anybody run out of here, okay? But here's the point. Hophni and Phinehas, that's what they're doing. People have stopped coming up to worship because of them, and their dad is doing nothing about it. Their dad, the high priest, is neither being the high priest nor a good father. And so Hophni and Phinehas are there, and when the time comes and someone says, yeah, let's take the ark out into battle, Hophni and Phinehas go, cool, let's do it. You know what, if you don't have a godly man overseeing godly things, they'll use it in an ungodly way, amen? These were ungodly men, they were not trustworthy. Where's Eli, by the way? Now we know he's old, we're going to see this. I don't care how old you are, you need to have your sons in order, and he doesn't. And so these Hophni and Phinehas, these ungodly young men, these thieves and fornicators, bring the ark out into the battle without... And again, do you see any prayer in here anywhere? Anybody seeking God? Asking for God's direction or God? No. Verse 5. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now this is amazing to me, that they're so excited that the ark shows up, yet where were they when it was time for sacrifice? Where were they when it came to worshiping the Lord? Isn't it amazing how when a war begins, all of a sudden everybody becomes really religious? Then when 9-11 happened, what happened to all the churches in America? They packed out. When a war begins, when your people are attacked, all of a sudden people want to run back to God. By the way, I have no problem with that. I think that's a good thing. But the problem is, often they lack sincerity. So the ark shows up. Now, are they cheering because they're so blessed to be in the presence of Almighty God, do you think? Or are they saying, oh yeah, Philistines are in trouble, you know what I mean? We're going to get you now. 4,000 of our guys died, and we're bringing the ark out. You guys are toast. They're, They're looking at it from a physical perspective rather than a spiritual one. Now, Notice they all shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, if you were walking by, you'd say, man, there's a smoking church service going on over there. Boy, they're so excited about God. Guys, all the emotion in the world means nothing if it is not grounded in the Word of God. Amen? Amen. People can get pumped up and fired up and be rolling in the aisles, and it means nothing if it is not consistent with the Word of God. The enemy loves to get people up to a fever pitch. Sometime back, it may still be happening, people were flying to Toronto to bark in the Spirit and get drunk in the Spirit. And, and I don't get it because the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. They were roaring like lions. The Bible says, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know why this happens? People are chasing the emotion instead of being grounded in the Word. And when they came, there was this huge shout and the earth shook, and they were excited. At the same time, they were in direct rebellion against God. They were not seeking the Lord. They were not praying. They were not making Him the priority. Emotions can lie, but the Word of God is the authority. More than just outward actions, but an inward transformation is necessary. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not just getting whipped up about God. It's not having a huge emotional thing. And I, Now, can God move through our emotions? What's the answer? Yes. Absolutely. But when He does, it will be consistent with the Word of God. Amen? So the Israelites probably felt that their, their idol was better than, their, than the idol of the Philistines. 
And again, that's the, it wasn't an idol, but that's the way they were treating it. Verse 6 and 7. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, shout. They said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Verse 7. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. You know what happens here? The Philistines, being idol worshippers themselves, equated the ark to the presence of God. And when they heard the shout, they were concerned and they were afraid because God was, they believed God was now with the children of Israel. So the Philistines now are concerned. They've brought the ark. And they had a better understanding of God's presence even than the children of Israel did. Verse 8. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Their fear was due to the ark's presence and Israel's past victories and all the things they had done. They recognized the greatness of the God of Israel, yet recognizing God's greatness and the power are not enough. They recognized God's greatness, but they were not submitted to Him. Guys, recognizing that God is God is not enough. Amen? Believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross is not enough. Remember, they had to take the blood and apply it in the shape of a cross. It wasn't even enough to slay the lamb. The blood must be applied for the angel of death to pass over. Guys, it's not enough to believe in the cross. The angel, or the the blood of Christ must be applied to us. So Israel is not seeking God's power, or they're seeking God's power through the ark, but we're unwilling to submit to the Lord. We got the ark here, we've manipulated, God's no doubt going to give us victory now, because we brought the ark out, but yet they've still not sought the Lord. Verse 9, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you may not become servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to, your, to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his own tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. How did it work out trying to manipulate God? They lost 4,000 the first time. Now they take the ark out in front of them, and now 30,000 die. We are to be submitted to God, not trying to manipulate Him. The Philistines' response is from a totally worldly perspective. Be strong. Be strong. Go out and fight like a man. But a Christian perspective ought to be when I am weak, He is made strong. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. But when when we battle with the world on its terms, we're going to lose every time. If you try to fight the world with worldly... And see, this is the whole point. Churches today are saying what we need to do is be more like the world so we can reach the world. What I would say is the Bible very clearly teaches we need to be more like Christ so we can reach the world. Amen? Being more like the world is only, we're, we're fighting them on their ground. And that's not the ground we want to be on. So 30,000 died. Why were they defeated? They had faith, but their faith was in the wrong thing. Their faith was in the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. Their faith was For you and I today, it should not be in our church, it should not be in our religion, it should not be in an organization. I was talking to a man yesterday, who we were talking about Mother Earth, and uh, was at a gas station, and we were talking, yeah, we saw a Mother Earth sticker, and, you know, bless our mother, and I said, Earth's not my mother, I'm sorry. 
Aren't you glad? Praise God. But here's the point. He said, no, earth's not my mother. The church is my mother. And I said, bro, the church isn't your mother either. I said, we are the church. Amen? We are the bride of Christ. And we can make the mistake of elevating religion to the place where we start to worship the church. We do not worship the church. We are the church. Amen? We don't worship a religion. Religion, relingara, means to relink. I love that true meaning of it, but I don't like the word religion, what it's come to mean today. And so we are to be relinked back to holy God. It's about a relationship with Him. And sadly, because they had no relationship with God, they were defeated soundly by the enemy. Sometimes people say, well, I'm going to church, I'm reading, I'm I'm going to all the programs. Why isn't it working? It won't work. Amen? It's not it that works. It's He that works. It's not the keeping, you know, i got to keep firm in all these things and then I'll know God. No, you know what? Just fall in love with God and then reading His Word will be a joy. Amen? As you read the Word, you're reading a love letter from the Creator of the universe, your best friend, your Heavenly Father, not trying to read so I can be, you know, studious enough so somehow I can learn more and then I can... No. That's the wrong motivation. Amen? We should read the Bible every day, but reading it to know our Heavenly Father better. Not it, but who? Verse 11, Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, that fulfills fulfills 1 Samuel 2, where the promise of their death in a single day, they were worshiping the wrong thing. These guys, their own fleshly desires. They took the best of the sacrifices. They were robbing God. They drank. They fornicated with women who came up to sacrifice. And it seemed like they were getting away with it. But as I said earlier, your sin will find you out. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And you know what? God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Last point. The glory has departed. How do we know? How do we see signs of that lost intimacy? Number one, going out to battle without the Lord. Number two, blaming God for our failure and defeat. Number three, putting our faith in the wrong thing. The ark of God instead of the God of the ark. And then lastly, the resulting consequences. Let's take a look. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. He was a Benjamite, which means he was a warrior. There were the the tribe of warriors. And he came with dirt on his head, which means he was in mourning. He was mourning. He ran the 20 miles to come back and bring news to the people of Israel that 30,000 other people have been slaughtered by the Philistines. Now, we have no way of proving this, but I will at least tell you, because there is some Jewish history that says that this was Saul. This Benjamite was Saul who would become King Saul. Now again, several of the things I looked at, Jewish lines and things, said that they believed it was Saul. We have no proof of that, but again, I thought I would at least mention it because so many people believe it may have been him. So, look what it says in verse 13. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on the seat by the wayside, watching. For his heart trembled for his two sons. Is that what it says? What did it tremble for? The ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. So Eli's heart is trembling for the ark of God. He's 98, he's blind, he's nearing death. And as high priest, he was responsible for the care and safety of the ark. 
but his earlier compromises with his sons had now allowed the ark to be out on the battlefield. And you know what? It's hitting him really hard at this point, realizing the ark is not where it belongs. And he's concerned and trembling with a very clear realization he's going to be in the presence of Almighty God pretty soon. And you know what? Isn't it amazing how you know, you can be neglecting God and all of a sudden you get close to the time when you know you're going to stand before God and your priorities can really change? You know, I've sat in with men who are on their deathbed and women on their deathbed and it's amazing how your priorities are just totally different. The closer we get to eternity, the more we have an eternal focus often. And Eli's realizing, man, he's trembling because what in the world is going to happen to the ark? My two knucklehead sons have got it. That's not good. Nothing good can happen. And so all the city cried out. They cried out because of their loss in battle. Verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? Eli had lost his sight both physically and spiritually. He lost sight of his calling. And it's so easy to do when we seek to please men as he did with his own sons rather than than trusting in the Lord. Verse 17. So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Then it says, And the ark of God has been captured. Now, Contrary to his previous actions, his reaction is going to be much greater to the ark being captured than his own sons dying. Because it had been prophesied already that his sons were going to die. But also, I believe finally he's understanding what should be the priority. The ark, not his sons. But sadly, if he had been acting that way For all the years earlier, the ark would have never been out there to begin with and his sons would not have been serving in the priesthood. Because for so many years, he made his sons the priority. But finally now, as it comes down to the end, he realizes my sons are not the priority, the ark is. You know what? God is the priority. Following God is the priority above everything else. And we can fall into the trap, like Eli, of putting family or job or other things in front of the Lord. Now imagine the ark had been stolen or captured. I I tried to think of what could be the best thing for us to understand how significant that was to them. Imagine if there was only one Bible for all the Christian church. One. And someone stole it. We'd be pretty bummed. Amen? The thing that God spoke to us through, the way God's glory was revealed to us, that's what the ark was. At least that's significant, if not more. And they had taken, you know, if you only had one Bible for all the people, would you be, you know, taking it with you everywhere and leaving it? No, you would have it somewhere kept safe, right? And here the ark, even more importantly, was not even to be seen by other people. It was supposed to be in the holy place. But sadly, they were more concerned about their fleshly victory than honoring God. And now it's been captured. And how is Eli going to respond? Then it happened... When he made mention of his sons dying, that's not what it says. When he made mention of the ark of God, then Eli fell back off his seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy, 
and he had judged Israel 40 years. It might have been heavy because he ate too much from the sacrifices when they took more than they were supposed to have. Amen? That's what it says. Don't steal so much, you won't be so heavy. So they trusted in the ark of God and they lost access to the God of the ark. They trusted in the ark of God and they lost access to the God of the ark because now it had been captured and the Philistines have it. Now, if you read ahead, you know the Philistines are not going to be real happy having it. Not going to work out so well for them. And they're eventually going to get it back. And the Philistines are going to be in great pain sending it back. We'll see that, okay? But in the meantime, the point is that they had trusted in themselves and because of it, they had lost fellowship with God. Now let's look how bad it became and look at the impact it has, the consequences on the next generation. Last few verses, we're almost done. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. So finding out that the ark had been captured put her into premature labor. Verse 20, And about the time of her death, the woman stood by her and said, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. This is so devastating, losing the ark, that even having a child could bring her no joy. Guys, if we have no relationship with God, there is nothing the world can offer us to bring us joy. Amen? We've broken fellowship with Him. There's nothing the world can give you to bring the satisfaction back that you can only find in Christ. Too often people try to do that. Well, my relationship with the Lord is not good, so I'll try this to fill the hole. You will never do it. And this is where she's at, that she's so brokenhearted. Now look what she names her son. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel Because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Kavad in Hebrew means glory. Ichabod is just the opposite. There is no glory. The glory has departed. Ichabod. It's interesting. A pastor was offered Calvary San Jose a guy who I admire a great deal, and he went and visited San Jose, and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with the Bay Area because Ichabod, the glory has departed. And I think he was half joking, but the truth is that what, what a better place to take a halogen light than the darkest place around, amen? amen? And this is a place that needs Jesus big time. Amen. And God brought you here to be someone who could reflect him to the world that so desperately needs him. So she says, she wants to name her son, the glory has departed. She's dying. She's beside herself. Now, imagine if they had had the same care for the ark before they lost it that they're having after they lost it. They never would have lost it. Amen? And the same is true for our walk. Imagine if we make it the priority now instead of waiting for the disaster to come first. Instead of waiting for the difficulty, instead of waiting for we've had the the most traumatic thing ever happen in our life and we finally turn back to God, why don't we just turn to Him now? Amen? Why don't we make Him the priority now? Why don't we seek Him now? And again, we see today the glory had departed from Israel. So too with many churches today, the glory has departed because the Word of God is no longer taught. I saw an interview just last night. It was interesting. 
Praise God for John MacArthur. John MacArthur's on there with three other guys, all supposed to be pastors, and they were talking about, and, and, and the three other guys would not say, they called themselves Christians who believed in the Bible, but none of them would say that Jesus is the only way. And the one guy kept getting pressed. Well, then you believe Jesus is the only way. Oh, no, I don't believe that. I believe the Muslims can go to heaven. But you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. But I believe the Muslims, it's okay for them too. And John MacArthur finally goes, are you, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, bring it, brother. And he said, guys, Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. How do you deal with that? Amen? You either agree with Jesus or you don't. And the glory departs when we start making Jesus less. We start downplaying his word. And we start being more concerned with preaching to felt needs than ministering the truth of the word of God. Amen? And so the glory departs when we start going out into battle without the Lord. We start blaming God for our failures instead of coming broken before him. We put our faith in the wrong things in an organization, or a program, or a method, instead of putting it in Christ. And the result is consequences of a life apart from God that are just traumatic. When the glory departs, we lose intimacy. It not only impacts us, but the generation to come. My prayer for us is that we would walk in intimate fellowship with God 24 hours a day. That we would wake up thinking about Him, We would walk around thinking about Him. We'd get in our car, having fellowship with Him. We'd drive down the road, singing praise songs to Him. We'd go, we'd be doing our job, and as we were, He would be ever on our mind and in our thoughts. As we were speaking to people, we would speak in a way as if Jesus was standing next to us because His Holy Spirit is. Amen? Amen. And we would live that way 24-7. Not giving God an hour and a half here and an hour and a half there, but walking 24-7 with God. Lord, pour out your glory upon us and help us to walk in it all the time. Amen? And let's not put our faith in anything else but Almighty God Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a loving, gracious, and merciful God. We thank You, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you pour out your spirit upon us to live inside of us. And Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, I pray that we would walk in intimate fellowship with you. Our relationships with you would be so close that we can hear you whisper. And Lord, that we can respond and say, yes, Lord, like this young boy Samuel did. Father, I pray that we would not put our faith in anything else. Not a baptismal certificate, not a walking an aisle and praying a prayer, not an organization we belong to, not how many times we've read through the Bible. All those things can be great, but Lord, the fruit of it is what really matters. Knowing the God of the Word. Lord, we thank You and we praise You. Help us, Lord, to walk in Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Let's stand and close the worship song.